have been talking about this uh, uh, doctrine called the priesthood of all believers. And, and essentially the doctrine says this, that we all have direct access to God. We don't need an intermediary, a human intermediary, um, because we can, we can access God through Jesus. But the, the point is, is that um, we're still a priesthood, means that there's certain duties or certain responsibilities or certain activities that we do that mimic what a priest did. But before we leave this topic, because we've been exploring this now for a couple of weeks, but before we leave this topic, there's an elephant in the room that, that we really have to talk about. There is a dark side to priesthood. And it's one that anybody is susceptible to. Because whenever you have a person who's acting as a priest, who is in between humanity and God, there's certain things that can take place. Priests can become very exclusionary. Priests can become very oppressive. And priests can become very extreme or unreasonable. If you think about that, it's because, well, I, I, I understand what God wants and you don't. So I will tell you, and if you don't live up to the standard, you can't have access. And something that was meant as, as a shield to protect people becomes a sword to hurt them. And we, 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 need to, we need to address that because that happens not just in the Old Testament. It doesn't just happen in the New Testament. It happens even today when we try to act like priests and we keep people out of the presence of God for a variety of reasons that may or may not make sense. And we need to talk about those things a little bit. And uh, um, I, was, I was thinking about this a little bit and, and noticing that in the New Testament, Jesus really takes religious leaders to task over this stuff. Uh, in fact, there's a, there's a place in Matthew uh, chapter um, 23, it's called the seven woes. And he goes, and he's talking to, the, to the, uh, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Out of these Pharisees and teachers of the law come the priests very often. Okay, so he's taking all these religious leaders, he's lumping them into one category, and he's saying, woe to you. I want, I want to read the first one to you. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Ugh. That is pretty harsh. Here's the second one. Woe to you, teachers of the, of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Ow! Jesus has some strong opinions about religious leaders of the day and how they were treating the rest of the world. And I think that he's reserved his harshest criticism for them. And as a person who could be considered a, quote, teacher of the law, i got to pay attention to this. Make sure that I'm, I'm clear about what is it that I'm doing? Why am I here? What, what are we trying to accomplish as a church, as a, as a leader? I mean, this is, this is really, really tough. Tough language. Painful language. 
And he, he fights it out with these folks, and eventually stuff like this costs him his life. If you think about it, you know, whenever you start, you know, banging your, your, your fist against the, uh, against the door of the establishment, you run the risk of some, some heavy price to pay. And yet, I find these words a little bit puzzling when I come across another verse. So I want you to turn with me to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. It's the second book of the New Testament, but I want you to go to the first chapter. And there's um, something I want to, to read out of here, because I think you might find this interesting. I'm in Mark chapter 1, and I'm beginning, uh, going to begin with verse 40, Okay. A man with leprosy came to him, Jesus, and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was filled with compassion. He reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you... Don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. I love this. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Now, one of the things I want you to realize is that Mark was actually uh, written first out of all the Gospels. It was written about 70 A.D., uh, some say 60, but 70 A.D., circa, okay? We often find Mark's words in both Matthew and Luke. Matthew was written roughly 80s. Um, Luke was somewhere 80 to 90 A.D. It was a little bit later. But we find almost verbatim, word, word for word, some of the same stories. And so we actually see this same story about being cured of leprosy in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. You can read it if you don't believe me. Uh, in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Slightly condensed, but you'll find almost the exact same words. And then uh, we get a similar idea going on in Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Okay? That one, it's not just one leper, but it's ten lepers. How many of you heard the story of the ten lepers? And they all go away, and one comes back to say, thank you, where are the other nine? Somebody made a famous song about it at one point, right? Jeff Moore? Outstanding. Thank you, I appreciate that. Um, so, we find the same, same uh, passage in each one. So look at this with me. There's uh, Mark 1, verse 44. But go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Matthew 8, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And of course, Luke 5, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. So you see that these same words appear in all of them, but here's what I'm interested in the most. Show yourself to the priest. Why? Isn't Jesus at odds with the religious leaders of his day? Why on earth would he tell these lepers, former lepers, to go and see the priests? Why, why would he do that? It's, it's a very, I don't know, it's kind of puzzling when we first think about it. So we need a little bit of history here. We need to understand kind of what's going on. First and foremost, 
Uh, let's talk a little bit about leprosy. Anytime we read leprosy in the Old or New Testament, it refers to a specific diagnosis of leprosy or any other skin disease. Okay? Just so that you understand that. And by the way, I do not recommend looking this one up on Google because some of the pictures are like, wow, hello. Uh, it was, uh, it was a, a bit frightening. Uh, it's a skin disease. It's, uh, it's very uh, infectious disease that causes severe disfiguring skin sores and nerve damage in the body. It is contagious. It is painful. Uh, it is ancient, but it's still around, especially in developing nations. As of right now, there is no cure for it. However, there is prevention for it. So um, it's still a problem in certain parts of the world today. But here's the interesting thing. Because it's so ancient, God actually made provision for it. He understood that that was a very real threat to his people, and so he created uh, certain guidelines for them to follow. And we find it in the book of Leviticus. Now, I know we don't spend a whole lot of time in Leviticus, but Leviticus is very useful for things like this, to help us understand what it was that God uh, put together for his people. And here it is in verse 13. I want you to see this because this is pretty powerful. Anyone with such a defiling skin disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. Can you imagine that kind of isolation? I mean, you're talking about something that's incredibly painful, something that's also incredibly contagious, and they have to live apart to protect everybody else. And so they, they form what we call leper colonies, small groups of people who lived together outside the camp and basically lived off of the, the generosity of other people, leaving them food at a safe distance. Can you imagine that? And yet it is necessary for them to protect everyone else. So God makes this provision for them. However, God also made provision for healing. And this is interesting. Verse, uh, chapter 14 very next chapter, the priest is to go outside the camp and examine them. If they have been healed of their defiling skin disease, the priest shall order that two live clean birds and some cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop be brought for the person to be cleansed. And then there was a sacrifice that was related to it. Verse 8, the person to be cleansed must wash their clothes, shave off all their hair, and bathe with water. Then they will be ceremonial clean. After this, they may come into the camp, but must stay outside their tent for seven days. So, there is a cleansing process, there is a sacrifice to be made, and then they're allowed back into the camp. So, if you have the skin disease, you're outside the camp, or in the case later on, outside the city. But if they are clean the priest must examine them. Now, I want you to think about this. In the absence of medical training, there has to be a group of people who have some knowledge of how the human body works, 
some knowledge of how to protect people. And for ancient Israel, that was the priestly class. They were the ones who were charged with the care of the people. And so because they cared for them, there was a process to isolate them and there was a process to bring them back, um, bring them back into the camp. And I think that's quite fascinating because ultimately speaking, the priest would have to verify the cleansing, number one, and number two, they were the only ones who would allow a clean person back into the community. Interesting, right? The only one that could verify the cleansing and allow a person back into community. Next slide. This is a recurring theme that we find in the New Testament. Here in Mark chapter 5, Jesus just uh, healed a demon-possessed man. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus did not let him, but he said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Now, interestingly enough, it was very likely that this man in this particular region was not a Jew, that he was a Gentile, he was a non-Jew, and so he did not have to go to the priest. But what did Jesus tell him to do? Go home to your people. And one of the things that I think all of these um, vignettes teach us is that <laughs> healing is incomplete without community. Or maybe we could, we could say something to the effect that, that um, community completes restoration. Does that make sense? Next slide. Restoration is incomplete. Uh, go back one. Restoration is incomplete without community. I want you to let those words sink in for a moment because I think this is really important. It's, it's, it's something for, for us to, to wrestle with. That community is as part, a much part of the restoration process as the actual healing itself. Because they're not isolated anymore. Does that make sense? I mean, think about that. And more importantly, what does that actually mean for those of us who are a priesthood of all believers? Because I think the implications here are actually mind-blowing. If we're supposed to be distributors of grace and mercy, which we learned about a couple weeks ago, if that's really what it's about, if we're supposed to be caring for people, then imagine this idea that restoration is incomplete without community. What does that say to us as priests? What does that say to us? Not to be exclusionary, but to be encompassing to bring people into the community, to invite them into the priesthood, to become part of the rescue mission themselves. Think about the implications of that. Don't even think about it, you know, what would the world be like if we all acted like that? How about we just think about our neighborhood? How about your office place? What would that be like if we were more about caring for one another and inviting them in the community? Here's the thing that I want you to understand. Other than 
giving someone your attention, other than giving someone your attention, the best way to distribute grace and mercy is to invite them to be part of your life. To pave the way for them to become part of your group of friends. And offer grace and mercy that way. Does that make sense? So personally, you give them your attention, but if you want to distribute true mercy and grace, invite them to be part of your circle of friends. What would that be like? The thing that we have to remember, um, more than almost anything else, when we talk about church, and we talk about church growth and all that, people want to belong before they believe. And for years, the church has gotten it backwards. We feel like they have to believe a certain way for, in order for them to belong. Not so. If they belong and say, I am part of that group, they are more likely to go, okay, now wait a minute. What do these people believe? Why are they acting like this? And then they ask why. And Pastor Tim uh, uh, preached on this a few weeks ago with the 21 Pilots song. You know, wait for them to ask you who you know is the lyric from the tune. That's what we're talking about here. It's the same thing coming up again and again. One of the promises that we make, well, it is the promise that we, that we make here at Thrive Church, is we will do everything we can to connect you to God and other people through Jesus so you can thrive. Because we think that thriving happens in community. You're not going to thrive very well on your own. You're just not. Because you're not gifted and graced and talented to do everything on your own. You're just not. And God doesn't ask you to do that. So why go against the flow? Why not lean into this kind of community that he has in mind? John Burke, who uh, a lot of us have read uh, when we, when we uh, started Thrive Church, um, was uh, a, a pastor down in um, Austin, Texas. And one of the things he says is that when you try to create a culture of connection between people, it takes a tremendous amount of energy. Yes, it does but it's so worth it. It's so worth it. And so one of the things that I wanted to make sure that we, we talked about is I want to give you three practices that you can do to do this because you don't just come here to get knowledge, you come here to actually try stuff, right? <laughs> we want to absorb the word and actually live it out. There's a novel concept. So let me give you three simple practices to do. Here's the first one, make room. You need to make room for other people. Uh, and the simplest way to do this is just to notice and pay attention. Make some observations. Who are the people around you that might be a little isolated? I know I've got three people in my neighborhood right now that would qualify. And we're going to do our level best to try to make some kind of connection with them. If it's nothing more than being my hey guy. Do you have a hey guy? Or girl. <laughs> this is just the person that you walk up to. You, don't know, you might not know their name. You go, hey. You know, you see him in the hallway. Hey, it's my hey guy, my hey girl. That's it. You don't know. I don't know where they live. I'm not even sure what department they work in, but I see him in the hallway. Hey, you know, kind of a thing. Notice, pay attention to the people who seem, who seem isolated. Um, put down your phone. Oh my gosh. That's the other thing. Put down your phone and pay attention to the people that are around you. Um, I was out on a date day with Eliana on Saturday she likes date days, because it usually means that I'm buying her treats. And um, when, when we uh, went out this Saturday, we sat down next to a man with a very big dog, and his name was One-Eyed Jack, because he only had one eye. Um, and he lost it to a coyote, 
And what was really interesting about it, and I said, oh, that's too bad. And the guy smiled and said, no, not really. The coyote didn't survive. Okay, great. So uh, can we sit down next to you, Doug? Yeah, I'm fine with it. Doug's fine with it if you are. <laughs> Jack was awesome, I'm telling you. He was really something else. But the point was, we didn't have a phone, and we weren't looking at our phone. We were actually paying attention, and there was this guy sitting alone. I ended up having this marvelous conversation with him. Um, Eliana did too, as she was petting the dog and eating a cupcake. <laughs> that was interesting. <laughs> But the point is we had this because we paid attention to the people who were around us. I meet more people that way in the coffee shop. Well, one, because I'm nosy and I eavesdrop. But the other, the other thing is I just try to pay attention. That's the spiritual term for it. You know, you pay attention to it. and Make room. You have to make room for other people. Here's the other thing. Make time for them. You have to make time. If you're going to invite them into your community of friends, check out your calendar. You have to be intentional about this thing and saying, when do I have time to do this? If you're so busy, if you're too busy <laughs> to make time for potential friends, you're too busy. And God doesn't ask you to do that. God is more interested in the relationships that you have with him and with other people than he is with the number of tasks you get done off your task list. Don't get me wrong. It's important to get stuff off your task list. I get it. But not necessarily at the expense of relationships. So you have to actually make time for this. And so here's the final one is make the move. And, and guys, I'm not talking about... Right? That's not the kind of move I'm talking about. The move I'm talking about is invite them to do something. Invite them to be a part of your life. Invite them uh, to lunch or to dinner or out for ice cream or something along those lines. Some way of connecting with them. I love it when I find out that people after church on Sunday go to lunch together. I love that. And if you're new to Thrive Church, um, I know this church well enough that if you ask somebody to go out for lunch with you, they're probably going to say yes, because <laughs> that's the kind of group they are. But if you've been a longtime part of Thrive, please don't make a new person ask you. You ask them, because we want to invite people, we want them to feel at home and to be part of, of Thrive Church as a body. So we want to ask and invite, so make the move. You have to make room for them, you have to make time for them, but you have to actually be intentional and make the move. Because it's great to think about it. I'm fabulous at thinking about stuff. But you actually have to execute on these things. You've got to actually do something in order to make a, an impact, a, a difference on it. And so as we, as we wrap up this idea of priesthood, we start thinking about this idea of, of arms open wide, do you run the risk of being hurt? Well, yeah. Oh, of course you do. But the point is, it's not the hurt. The point is, you're going to come across people who are so going to appreciate that because they want to belong before they believe. And once they believe, then maybe they'll behave differently. It's not reverse order. Belonging precedes all of that. So how do we help people belong. As priests, it's grace and it's mercy in how you actually make that happen.